0: So, good morning. Good morning to the first webinar of Guernsey's Sustainable Finance Week. uh, Finance is sustainability in the post-COVID era, the role of private capital. And I'm delighted to be joined to kick us off this morning by Ben Caldicott, founding director of Oxford Sustainable Finance programmes, associate professor at Oxford University, and quite frankly, he has a CV uh, longer than my arm, and also joining us this morning is Angelica Badalai who is the Chief Economist and Head of Research in the City UK. So good morning to you both, good morning Ben, good morning Angelica, how are you?
1: Good morning, very well.
2: Good, good morning, very well,
0: thanks. Very good. Now I forgot to introduce myself, my name is Dr Andy Stone. I'm Deputy Chief Executive Strategy here at Guernsey Finance and I established Guernsey Green Finance which is our uh, strategic initiative um, to help fight climate change. So the, just before we go into the, um, the discussion of the webinar this morning, I'll just go through a few housekeeping points for all of those watching online. Obviously, there's um, no need to point you to the fire escapes. I'm sure you can um, sort yourselves out on that one. Um, but we'll have a panel discussion this morning. Ben will be uh, giving a few introductory remarks, followed by Angelica, and we will be followed by a discussion and a live Q&A. So I do ask you all who are watching, So you get the Q and A widget on your screen and ask questions. I shall be messing around with my computer to post those questions as we go. There will also be polls. I'll be asking the audience their views on significant issues uh, of the day, and we'll be again feeding back to you um, your responses uh, in real time. The literature from from ourselves, uh, from our speakers, and also from our sponsors and supporters is on the website, and there is a website widget too. So please. Uh, do uh, Utilise those resources too, and please do complete our survey. It's important for us to receive uh, feedback. Um, obviously, with the communication of the digital era, it's always best to um, improve and progress. Also, I've been asked to remind everyone that we do have a Guernsey Green Finance Twitter. That's at GSY Green Finance. Um, so please uh, do follow that. Um, we've just uh, gone live in recent weeks, and do also refer a, a colleague to, to the webinar. Uh, They'll be posted uh, on our website in an hour or so after we've done the live broadcast. Um, So you know, I'm sure and I hope they'd be interested. So back to the conversation of the morning, financing sustainability in the post-COVID era, the the role of private capital. And that's something we'll be looking at during the course of the week. We've got three great webinars lined up, obviously uh, today with Angelica and Ben. Uh, We have the role of uh, family offices and tomorrow, and on Thursday we're looking at the role of, of private equity. These are supplemented with podcasts from international leaders in sustainability that are available on the website uh, on consecutive days, on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, with Stephen Noah from the United Nations today, Sabine um, to Birbler from the Swiss Sustainability Institute tomorrow, and Ben McQuay, one of the co-founders of the Hong Kong Green Finance Association on Thursday. So that's our series for the week. And to kick us off, we have Ben and Angelica. Now Ben, and we go back to, it was originally going to be a physical week and we, were going to, we decided to transpose this into the, the digital format. And when we were deciding whether or not to go ahead with this, it was touch and go. Now, clearly, uh, we're still in lockdown well, in the UK. In Guernsey, we're slightly more fortunate. We're all back in the offices now. We have been COVID-3 for the best part of 40 days. Um, so sort of quite very fortunate in that respect. We exchanged an email uh, and said, look, we're going to go onto the digital format. How's about you if you can provide us some preliminary thoughts about the issue of the day, about how we will utilize private capital, financing, sustainability, specifically fighting the climate change uh, uh, cause. um, And if if you've got any thoughts. Now, I remember at the time that response was, well (laughs) a bit early. Let's, uh, Let's see if I can put some thoughts together. But we are very much still in that phase of the crisis. It might be the coming out of the initial phases. Um, one thing's for sure, things will change. One thing's for sure, we're not entirely certain how. And one thing's for sure, this is probably the first part of a contribution to that conversation. Um, so with no further ado, I'm, you know, I, I promised you I would uh, talk the higher legs of the donkey if given a chance. So with no further ado, that's my introduction to you, Ben, and we're going to move across yourself now for some introduction remarks and you know basically give us the view from uh, one of the, the UK's most foremost experts in the field. So thank you very much. Over to you, Ben. Great, thanks.
1: An- thanks, Andy. Um, a wonderful introduction. Thank you so much. And wonderful to, to be here. I'm sorry, it's not not in person. I was really looking forward to visiting Guernsey and participating in the week, but it sounds like you've put, put on an amazing um, drumbeat of events this week, so congratulations for that. Um, so I thought I would uh, just sort of say a few words about um, the policy context and, and the evolving policy context in relation to COVID and the conversation about stimulus and bailouts and how that all links to finan- financing sustainability. Um, and then obviously we can we can, uh, have Q&A and, and get into some of this in more detail. Um, there's clearly a lot of momentum behind this idea of building back better or a green and resilient recovery. Um, and that's gaining momentum um, in the UK, but also around the world. There is focus interest in um, both the stimulus and the bailouts so are there what are the stimulus measures that can deliver win-wins that can support short-run growth but also long-run sustainability and then bailouts that can also support sustainable outcomes and a particular focus on conditionality of those bailouts have been some interesting ones that have come through internationally for example canada um, insisting that companies that have received um, bailouts uh, have to comply with or um, produce uh, TCFD compliant um, disclosures, and the Air France, KLM bailout from the French government that had conditions attached to decarbonizing or reducing emissions associated with with certain routes and uh, not competing with high-speed rail in France. Um, so there are essentially three phases to this. We're coming out of the, the first phase, the immediate crisis response that's understandably been focused on Getting money out the door to companies and the furlough schemes, obviously, I think um, it's right that policymakers should just be focused on getting getting the money out the door rather than um, creating lots of conditions for that. Um, but we're now moving into this this second um, phase, the bailout stage, where we're going to see much more industry and company specific um, bailouts and support in the UK. Um, that's uh, called Project Birch, that's been sort of covered in, some of, in, in the press and, uh, and the Treasury and other departments are thinking about how to support industries and specific large companies. Um, there's always conditionality associated with, with public bailouts. Um, I will suspect there's gonna be more emphasis on um, public money for public goods, which is a kind of mantra that the UK government has used in relation to um, the environmental land management scheme, which is a scheme designed to replace the common agricultural policy um, you know, we will pay for things that generate environment, environmental outcomes, that generate public goods. And I think the same mantra can apply to broader um, bailouts. Um, I, there's also uh, uh, opportunities to lock in behaviours. Um, and we've seen, um, again, looking, looking here in the UK, um, some examples of that. There a couple of weeks ago, there was an announced uh, extra funding, $2 billion for cycling and walking. Um, and uh there are other opportunities to support structural transformations. Um, you know Is there going to be more emphasis on high speed rail than aviation, for example and how do you reflect that in some of the the spending choices that are coming up um so we're going we're going to see more more details about industry and company bailouts over the the, the next few months um, there's then this longer term piece uh which will extend of actually for i think quite a few years partly because of the legacy of having to um, refinance bailouts that have been provided and to, to mop up um, all sorts of challenges that have arisen um, this recovery stage where people are thinking more about stimulus um, and, and and whether that's possible what that should look like if it's possible um, i think there still is a, a debate particularly um, about the size of any stimulus is there the fiscal capacity for a big stimulus on top of um, what we've seen already, and, um, and I think there's probably going to be less fiscal capacity than, than people think. Um, uh, less fiscal capacity in constrained public finances means that um, the, the conversations about carbon pricing, about taxing pollution, um, and, and raising revenue from those measures are going to increase. Um, that obviously then creates an economic signal for the sorts of activities that we want to see more of and uh, and a signal for uh, to to reduce pollution and tackle emissions um i think we're going to also see another generation of um we saw this after the global financial crisis and after, after fiscal and during fiscal consolidation you know more more of an emphasis on other levers um to to achieve outcomes particularly around regulation so you know what does what what regulatory changes can be used to achieve policy outcomes rather than fiscal levers Um, I think this is going to have quite wide ranging implications for infrastructure priorities as well in the UK and internationally. So um, you know broadband and um, instead of. uh, Airports and public transport. I I mean, I'd be amazed if um, the third runway at Heathrow now goes ahead. Um, I think there's probably also a realization that demand reduction, demand management is a a really good way of um, delivering. Enhanced infrastructure services. Um, so, you know, instead of building uh, a new railway or whatever it might be, you know, is there a, can can working from home and so on reduce demand that we don't have to make those 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 big lumpy investments? Um, and exploring how that happens. I think th- throughout the world there's going to be more of a focus on resilience um, and reshoring. Um, supply chains will become shorter. Um, there'll be a lot of emphasis on increasing capacity margins across different industries, regulated industries, and, and even industries that aren't yet regulated or aren't regulated in that way, um, and also in the public sector. So uh, that's going to create some investment opportunities and some, some challenges as well. And I think the, the thing that we'll see from all of this is um, we're going to see more public ownership. In the economy over time, um, and that has, I think, some very interesting implications for the role of the state in the economy. Uh, in the UK, um, publicly owned companies are managed by UK Government Investments, which used to be called the Shareholder Executive. Um, I think, last count, they had less than 20 or less than 30 companies. Um, but we saw that, for example, with with um, RBS, you know, the UK government still owns a, a majority share in um, in RBS even after so many years since the global financial crisis, if there are b- bailouts um, that are provided and those get converted to equity, I think you're gonna see um, state ownership, um, minority stakes, majority stakes um, persisting for some time. And and that then intersects with some interesting developments in case law that we've seen. And I mentioned Heathrow be- before, um, but the judgment uh, a few months ago now um, that that criticized the government um, uh, authorization of the third runway was, that was around consistency with government policy. And um, there are, other, there are other, other things like that. So you know, if government does own stakes in, say, an airport um, or an airline, these are quite plausible scenarios given what we're seeing in those sectors. Um, it would have to manage that asset uh, in a way that was consistent with its own policy. And what does that mean? Well, it's got to manage that in a way that's consistent with net zero by mid-century, got to manage that in a way that's consistent with the 25-year environment plan and its air pollution targets and so on and so forth. And so you. So, I think that the role of the state as an active owner um, is going to become a, a much bigger thing. And of course, institutional investors, asset owners have been thinking about what that means. Um, and there's some really interesting questions we can talk more about about, you know, what does it mean to be as an investor, to be aligned with net zero or to be aligned with the Paris Agreement, um, and how do you track that over time, and how do you give effect to that? And governments will have to be uh, contending with those questions as as well. But uh, so I'll stop there. But just some reflections on the the kind of the, the steps of the recovery and how that links with um, some sustainability questions.
0: Some very deep, uh, thought-provoking stuff there, Ben. And before I you know, not for me to respond, but before we move on, there are some, clearly some significant ramifications for basically the, the functioning of the economy, and the functioning of the state, and the role of the private investor that you, you alluded to there, which is a bit of meat to the conversation for later. But before we go there, uh, Angela, again, um, perhaps just a, f- a, few, a few moments for you to some sort of, very difficult to respond to what Ben said specifically, but if, in terms of some pre-prepared thoughts on the, on the topic of the morning.
2: Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Andy, and uh, good morning, everyone. Um, so, my my role at the City UK is is basically managing our our economic research program. So, um, you know, with from that perspective, of course, you know, I would I would definitely endorse what Ben said, particularly about fiscal capacity and the and the severe fiscal constraints that I think you know we are all going to see coming up, and indeed already starting to see. But, um, you know, although my, my remit is pretty broad, um, it includes leading the city of UK's work on green and sustainable finance. And so I'm coming at this from basically quite, quite a holistic perspective. Um, so, for example, I'm currently leading our working group on sustainability. And, you know, as I was kind of... Um, working with this group, we basically went back to kind of first principles to look at, you know, what exactly do we mean by sustainability? And I think it's really interesting because um, prior to COVID-19, we, like many others, I think were more or less equating sustainability with um, environmental concerns. And then obviously, um, since the pandemic, um, there's been much more of a focus on sort of wider ESG considerations, um, especially the social aspect. And I think it is very interesting how this crisis has really emphasized the extent to which environmental and social concerns and risks are actually really related. So um, there's, there's one person who's actually put some of this quite well, and there's a journalist named um, David Quammen, so I just wanted to share very, very briefly um, an excerpt from, from something he's written, which I think describes it quite well. So he said, um, we must remember that COVID-19 was not a novel event or a misfortune that befell us, it was it is part of a pattern of choices that we humans are making with things like travel, urban expansion and deforestation. We disrupt ecosystems and we shake viruses loose from their natural hosts. And when that happens, they need a new host. And often we are it. So it's in a way, it's kind of a different perspective um, from which to approach this. And I think it's really interesting that um, the European Commission, for example, is embracing some of these links. So, you know, the big news recently was, of course, about the the proposed 750 billion euro um, coronavirus recovery fund, which in and of itself has a lot of sustainability elements. Um, But actually, I wanted to flag the current consultation on their renewed sustainable finance strategy, because it explicitly notes that the European Green Deal and the overall approach to sustainability actually needs to be much more comprehensive. So they actually say, um, and I'm quoting here, they say, it's important now more than ever to address the multiple and often interacting threats to ecosystems and wildlife to buffer against the risk of future pandemics, as well as preserve and enhance their role as carbon sinks and in climate adaptation. So I felt like in one sentence there, um, you have quite an elegant link between climate issues, wider environmental issues and social issues. So that's one thought. And then just um, the second uh, kind of thought that I wanted to bring up at this point is um, this idea of mainstreaming of sustainable finance. So, of course, in the past few years, we saw lots of debate about the mainstreaming of of green and sustainable finance. And personally, I don't really think we'd quite reached the point um, when the pandemic hit that um, sustainable finance had gone mainstream. Um, But now my hope is that governments will see the current situation as an opportunity to integrate green and sustainable principles in their economic rebuilding plans. And of course, there's going to be a huge role for financial services to play in terms of things like, you know, green infrastructure investment, you know, underwriting of green and social bonds, um, indeed, even being issuers of of green and social bonds. Um, The City UK is actually currently undertaking research on what we're calling an uh, an ecosystem recovery plan. And that's going to look at the economic and policy implications of the pandemic and then the financial and related professional services industry's role in contributing to the rebuilding of the economy. Um, So we'll try and look at things like, you know, how can the industry work with the government um, to try to support areas that will make positive contribution, Um, you know, maybe things like uh, supporting the application of technology to, to climate change solutions. So just to wrap up my, my thoughts at this point, um, I think the bottom line is that the crisis should encourage us to re-examine our goals and our timeframes, and to see if we can maybe try and find something of a silver lining coming out of this crisis. And I think that silver lining would be the possibility of the kind of leapfrogging effect in terms of investment and economic development that you normally um, only see in, in developing countries. And I think that would be a sort of best case scenario, but even a more moderate case could see sustainable investing being one of those areas where a trend that was already underway pre-COVID is now accelerated by the pandemic. Oh. So yeah, I'll leave it there for now, but i um, happy to, I'm sure we'll discuss all of these points um, over the next uh, hour or so. Some
0: interesting points Angelica, that, that that wider, broader uh, aspect that you talked about, um, very very pertinent indeed. Um, you also mentioned uh, mainstreaming of, of, uh, of, uh, of green finance, and actually we were a part of ourselves uh, and the Green Finance Institute in the UK, a part of the United Nations Finance for Sustainability Network, and a report that was published last year talks about shifting gears and the need to up, you know, upscale uh, the level of investments into um, you know, green and sustainable assets. I suppose, and Ben, you've, you've mentioned it, you've both actually mentioned the, this fiscal constraint uh, in terms of, I'm assuming you both mean capacity of, of the public sector. Um, I'd like to ask you both in terms of learning lessons from the pandemic, um, you know, for, for climate change, what, what can we learn to our response to the pandemic uh, for financing sustainability? And specifically, any thoughts about, you both talked about the public uh, finance role any sort of lessons learned for um, private actors, and what, what steps private investors might might be looking to be, to be making in this new era. Well, I, and I got my apology, I'll go to Angelique. You've started, so I'll, I'll I'll let you respond first.
2: Sure, thanks. Um, I think something that's really important is you know, basically, fundamentally, the idea about um, the importance of the importance of. Um, mitigation strategies, right? And and preparedness, even for far off risks. Um, and this probably seems like a really obvious point. But I guess my hope is that, you know, the public also now embraces the idea that, you know, it is in fact worth addressing risks that seem really distant and remote and, uh, you know, possibly far off in a long time away. Um, so in that sense, obviously, you know, the hope is that maybe the lessons from from the pandemic could be ac- applied to, to climate change. But that I think that Public awareness and embracing of some of these ideas is is crucial because that in turn um, could give governments the the sort of mandate and the remit to focus on on some of the long term challenges. Um, it's probably a little bit too too soon to tell but but that's that's my hope
0: Brent, want we'll spend one?
1: Sorry, first technical problem. That was that was complete human error, not unmuting myself. Sorry, I was saying that I completely um, agree. You look at my with... face.
0: That was the look of a man had a heart attack.
1: <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, but resilience uh, and its saliency is definitely increased in both the public and private sectors. And I think that's super important. Um, and we've got, you know, uh, we have, uh, you know, everything is designed uh, actually to not be very resilient. And we, um, we have very low capacity margins in the public and private sector. We've seen this with obviously the availability of ventilators and PPE and, and so on. And there are lots of other examples. Um, you know, there was an instance last year or the year before last with um, with a blackout uh, as a result of, uh, partly a result of a lack of capacity, um, you know, the lack of munitions, not enough frigates, you know, like a mm. pick, pick pick area and you'll find lots of examples of not having enough capacity and not thinking about capacity margins. And that's kind of why I think there'll be a lot of pressure um, to evaluate what are, what are appropriate capacity obligations and capacity margins across the economy, um, ranging, of course, from the NHS, but also the supermarkets and, you know, how, how much food should be stored on site. And we saw at the beginning of the crisis, of course, Places running out of running out of food, so that that does that really does change um, can change a, a lot of things, and a lot of the things that improve resilience are um, are capital intensive, right? So I think um, that's that's kind of interesting, and a lot of those things can also be very aligned with the um, with tackling climate change and tackling other environmental challenges. So I think another thing is just uh, is is again these win wins to try to trying to find areas where we can achieve multiple outcomes at the same time.
0: Well, Ben, you, you make the point about win-wins, actually, and that leads into a point I'd like to, to make. You talk about returns, actually, you know, in terms of win-wins for private capital. What private investors are looking for at the end of the day is to preserve and enhance their, their capital. Um, you've already talked about the the scale of uh, of, of, the, of the agenda in terms of investment for public agenda. And building back resilience, again, is, is required for deploying more capital. It, so. And you also, um, Angelica, talked about ESG investing and you've seen the re- most recent research demonstrating that perhaps returns uh, for investors are aligned with the ESG sort of strategies um, is, 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 a, is a good determinant of better returns. But at the end of the day, I'm going to come back to that several times, is, is our, how do you see investor demand uh, for return being consistent with a with an, with an invest, investment investment or a, a building back better strategy that's requiring deploying a lot of public capital. So specifically what's the, what's the role of private capital in in that part? And I'll trick to Ben there, sorry. Actually, I appreciated appreciate sure. I'm looking at two of you here and I'm I'm learning about things. <laughs> um
1: well, I mean I think uh you know what's what's the role of private capital in, in all of this? Obviously it's to um you know to to make money and make returns um i i think we've got a as as with the post gfc right we we need to um public balance sheets are constrained how do we make sure that the stuff that needs to happen the things that we need to realize in the economy take place um public balance sheets public financial institutions are never going to be able to finance all of this stuff Um, so so how do we we create that relationship um, to make sure that private capital can flow into the infrastructure that we need to see, for example, Um, and we we know how to do it, and uh, we've got lots of experience about how to do it and how to do it in a way that can attract deep pools of low-cost capital, which is important because you want to make sure that um, taxpayers and ratepayers aren't being ripped off, and um, we need to... Think about how we design and scale up some of those those mechanisms in in new areas, so um, you some some people on watching might be familiar with the contracts for difference regime in the u k for offshore wind and on large scale renewables. Um, I mentioned this environmental land management scheme for nature that 's replacing the common agricultural policy um, that's a, it's a, it could be a very similar thing you know you 're essentially creating Long term contracts for natural capital um, and um, so the question is how, how do you create create that that signal for, for, for financial institutions and for the private sector um, and there're going to be other analogous another other areas too but um, the, the thing that's interesting for me is you know how do we, how do we create those real economy signals for, for capital to then to then flow?
0: Well, Angela, you represent the City, or you work for the City UK, and you know, the role of the City is broadly to to act as a as a sink to bring capital together to be deployed in, in, in the real uh, in the real economy. Have you got what's what's your perspective on on, on, on this issue?
2: Yeah, I mean, um, I think it's uh, it's unquestionable that um, that private, the private sector and private sector financing is is going to have an enormous role. Um, you know, this this is probably another one of these areas where it was a trend that was already in evidence before the crisis. So, you know, even last year and the year before, and all of our previous research in this area was saying that um, the scale of financing that is going to be required um, for the for the transition and for um, you know adaptation and mitigation strategies is so enormous that it's going to require a combination of private and public sector financing. Um, and then, obviously, what we were what we were talking about a moment ago in terms of um, uh, constraints on the public finances now is is really just going to exacerbate that dynamic. Um, it's interesting as well that you know a lot like when you look at um, sustainable investment on that on the asset management side, um, you see obviously you know lots lots of um, lots of movement from institutional investors, but you know sectors. Um, for example, like in the u s you see um university endowments in both the u s and the uk you see um family offices moving into this space um, and I think that those are those are some of the segments where you see um, asset owners and investors basically specifically uh, requesting sustainable investments so these are areas where you see some of this um value value driven investment coming from um so it's yeah, I think uh, sort of an anecdotal example of, of how important um, private capital is, is going to be in funding all of this.
0: Mm. You make a good point, Angie. and if I just wanted to, to take a stock take and actually ask a question that probably um, more, more of an introductory type, but it's very easy for us now, post-COVID or. You know, during the, the first wave, as it were, to be talking about finance and sustainability in that, in that post-COVID era. But moving into the year, you mentioned it in your introduction, Ben, that there, were, you know, there was a real head of steam being built up in this area, talking about whether people were investing in impact, whether people were investing in ESG or green finance. I'd just take a step sideways for a moment and ask you what, both of you what you thought the three key trends were you know, coming into 2020 in respect of financing, sustainability, and, and the movement of private capital into this area, and whether or not those lessons, you know, how, how they've continued through this year, in terms if you were referring to research in the States. And um, we had the discussion earlier about the, the recent research in why, talking about the, the movement of significant flows of uh, institutional private money into the ESG agenda. And again, I'm looking at you there Angelique. I'm going to uh, ask you for that for the, the first response my eyes met across the uh, the internet
2: sure um yeah I mean as, as I said earlier I think if you look at the big trend I think it's probably it would be it would have been a little bit premature to talk about um green and sustainable finance having been mainstreamed but I guess the big trend that I saw was the increase it sounds very very sort of basic right but it, it, it was um Quite a noticeable shift, as, as you were referring to, is the increase in investment in um, flows of capital. But related to that, and this I think is a really crucial point, it was the the increase in awareness, right? So awareness, both in the sense of you know different um, segments of investors, so you know a little bit more involvement from the from the retail investor base as well, um, and you see uh, the the growth of you know ESG focused ETFs and things like that. Um, But then um, also more on the, when you look at the institutional investor base, you know, awareness of some of these ideas of, you know, metrics and, you know, a moment ago you mentioned returns. So a little bit more nuanced debate about um, returns, returns on on ESG assets. Are they, what kind of returns, quantitative returns, qualitative returns, risk adjusted returns. um, And I think that you know, if you look at last year, for example, um, the level of awareness and sophistication of the debate, of course, I think there's still a long way to go, but it was, um, you know, a, a huge difference compared to, to the terms of that debate, even, you know, two, two or three years ago. So I think um, if I had to sum it up in a word, I think it would be around awareness
1: is the big trend.
0: And Ben, is, is that your view too?
1: Uh, yeah, no, I agree with much of that. I mean, I think so, so. Some trends that I think are continuing from pre-COVID into into the recovery period and through the crisis. Um, interest beyond climate. Uh, so other. I mean, obviously, I spend a lot of my time focused on on the E um, and ESG, and so there's been more interest in biodiversity and nature, in oceans. Um, this is partly reflected also in conversation now about a new task force on nature-related financial disclosures, a TNFD, to complement the task force on climate-related financial disclosures. Um, I think uh, Angelica was, was absolutely right about growing interest from uh, retail investors and more products and services catering for that, that area, that segment. Um, and then you've got things that are not, are not going away, they're, they're just increasing in, in importance and salience. Um, you know, measurement, how do you measure outcomes? Um, If you're claiming to have impact, how do you measure them? Um, Engagement. uh, How should investors be engaging with investee companies to achieve outcomes? Um, If anything, uh, you know, investors are even more active now um, than they were before the crisis. You know, it's created another reason to engage with companies and more demands to engage with companies. Um, I think one, one trend we'll see more of, going back to specifically on climate um, over the next 12 to 18 months, I think is a sort of a recognition that kind of focusing on risk and risk management and stranded assets is is obviously makes a a lot of sense, but it is not the same thing as being Paris aligned or being um, net zero aligned. So you can have brilliant climate risk management strategies, you can manage climate Mm -hmm. risk effectively, you can disclose your climate risk exposure—that is not the same thing as alignment. Um, although there is a bit of an overlap, but um, <laughs> but it's not the same thing. And increasingly, there is pressure, and will be more pressure, on alignment being um, being really important—an important thing for financial institutions to, to to achieve and measure progress on and um, disclose progress on. Particularly, I think, as, a, as a, in relation to. Um, the UK's presidency of COP26, uh, which will happen now in November 2021.
0: Well, you, you make a very good point there, uh, talking about risk Ben, and obviously the TCFD agenda was all about Task Force for Climate Related Financial Disclosures, for those few people that is watching that don't know that. It, but, but In terms of uh, the, the original strategy being to disclose and therefore make more people more aware and, and therefore lead us to a more of an environmentally sustainable investment. Uh, universe, um, you're absolutely right in terms of that, I think we'll see develop more and more. And I'm going to um, take my life into my hands now and actually push out a poll to to, to the audience listening. And it's, I think it's quite a good stock take uh, at this at this juncture. I'm going to push the, the question out to the audience and hopefully get some responses back um, and asking to, to what's the, the audience, what's the most important factor in attracting private capital into green and sustainable investments? So. And, Doing that now, I press the button. I'm hoping that that's going to be there. Um, and we're basically I'm asking the audience: um, Is it returns to attract private capital? Is it simple, straightforward guidance? Um, what's required more? Is it more straightforward, professional how-to advice, um, uh, or is it indeed concerns for risks? So you know there are four different factors there that you know in their own way will drive private capital to um, uh, to investing in this space. Uh, before we come to the results, do you have any any views on that, uh, Angelica? So is it returns? What's what's stopping the the wall of private capital moving into this area? Um, is it the lack of return? Is it is it the lack of guidance? Is it the lack of advice that's pointing people in this direction, or is it actually it's it's uh, a misunderstanding of the, of the risks involved.
2: Yeah, I do actually. As you can probably guess from from um, my my previous comment, I do actually think that relative lack of awareness and lack of uh, lack of guidance is is a big part of this, right? And this, of course, is it's sort of that um, part part of that uh, mainstreaming discussion, which which we could have for hours and hours and hours. I'm I'm sure, but. You know, when you look at returns, I think it's it's quite interesting, right? So there's, there's been lots of um, news and reports and analysis saying that um, in key one of this year, for example, um, ESG indices outperformed some of the benchmark indices and so on and so forth. And I don't want to get into like a whole long technical discussion about returns. Um, long story short, I would say that I think the evidence is mixed about um, the performance of, for example, um, ESG funds or indices versus conventional ones. A lot of it, I think, also depends on, on the time frame that you're looking at. Hmm. Um, you know, there's some evidence that assets perform better, ESG assets perform better. There's some some evidence that say they they underperform slightly. But I think the most interesting thing is that from what I can tell, um, a lot of the evidence is pointing in the direction that in more recent months and years, some of that um, gap, if you like, between ESG and conventional assets, the ret- some, of the, some of the return gap has been narrowed a bit. And that means that when you have investors saying, you know, giving, giving a mandate and saying, you know, I want my investments to be in sustainable assets, um, if indeed there was a the perception that that meant sacrificing return, um, a narrowing of the gap means that, you know, essentially there's a little bit less of the sacrifice. So now I guess what you're seeing is a combination of, you know, um, the, the standard quant return plus you know essentially I, I don't it's probably not the right phrase but a sort of you know non quant like a, a qualitative return which is essentially having your investments aligned with with your values and then I guess the the, the final point that I'd make here is about um, the the risk factor right um, so so again obviously you know in, investors should be thinking about risk adjusted returns and mm-hmm. one thing I think is interesting is you know the research out there that suggests that um, Companies that perform poorly on ESG metrics um, tend to be or they are more likely to suffer um, credit ratings downgrades um, than than, than other firms. And so, you know, from that perspective, there may be a benefit for investors, you know, especially if they're more risk averse investors to to choose um, the ESG focused firms.
0: So I've, I've, I've pushed the, the responses out to the audience. That's a very good point in terms of returns. It, it, it is returns every it, it, in terms of the, the largest, um, uh, the, the, the largest response uh, of our of our of our audience. Interestingly, uh, risk was down there at number four, and yet the, the policy agenda where we started from is that TCFD and COP26 moving forward, um, who has been a, a huge push uh, by the global bodies. Um, and you know, some would say that maybe TS- TCFD will be it's going to be mandatory reporting coming to a financial institution near you over the course of the next couple of years. But at the end of the day, for private capital, um, the poll says it, it still returns number one. Ben, do you, do you see in terms of that that need, that any innate conflict between a, a, a need for investors to have return and, and, and a, an agenda that requires, that's going to consume huge amounts of capital? How do you how do you sort of reconcile that? I think.
1: So, so I mean, lots of questions there, and lots of questions yes. in relation to your Same poll. Um, I mean, I, I think um, you know, obviously, this this depends a lot on the asset class, right? Um, and so, there's some, there's lots of asset class specific questions. Um, it would it would surprise me um, if people were investing in sustainable and green investments primarily to hedge risk. Um, or to manage risk exposure, which is kind of what your question is basically asking um, so that that makes seems to make sense to me um, and even you know for example, you know most green bonds right they're they're recourse to the issuer a lot of the issuers are fossil fuel companies, so you buy a green bond, how is that going to help you manage climate risk when the, the issuer <laughs> might be exposed to quite a lot of climate risk actually mm. so so some of these um, you know some some green investments. Um, in some asset classes, might not actually help you help you to manage manage risk. I think one of the um, the interesting things uh, about uh, sort of building on what Angelica was saying, you know, there's a huge amount of literature basically saying look, um, firms that are that have high ESG scores and better ESG practices outperform, um, and they're more profitable, and they, they, their share price performs better, and their cost of capital is lower. And you know, I broadly buy into that. That, those hypotheses, and uh, there's an awful lot of empirical evidence. The interesting thing is that how, how that seems to not translate into fund performance. So there was some analysis from the IMF basically saying that ESG funds don't – there's no statistically significant outperformance, underperformance relative to normal funds, um, despite the fact that that, that that sort of micro firm level Hypothesis, I think, holds true. I think the reason for that is that a lot of these funds, of course, are, are passive, um, and they are you know using, basing their decisions on um, on ESG score providers, and these ESG scores, I'm not sure, are necessarily measuring the right thing. Um, and and I and I think that's something again, we're gonna we're gonna there's going to be much more scrutiny about. What these ESG scores are are actually measuring? Are they actually connected to to performance, um, and uh, and how, how they how they composed, and what are the black boxes that are used to to get these to get these scores? And there are a lot of a lot of data gaps.
0: I mean, you mentioned ESG Ben, and you've done your own research recently that talks about and, and points out the. The, the broader good of uh, of firms um, doing good right, with good EST scores for the, for the broader economy so you saying that the the, the general uh, lessons for the investing public uh, are mixed
1: uh no that's not that's well, i'm not sure i'm saying that i'm just i'm saying that um there seems to be a disconnect between Strong evidence at the company level about ESG performance, resulting in better financial performance, and the performance of ESG funds. Um, And why is there why is that gap? And I I think it's to do with the ESG scores (laughs) um, that are driving a lot of investment decisions. Um, And you know there are lots of things like that uh, that are really important, poorly understood, um, key to the future of this market. And, um, And obviously there are lots of uh, researchers, lots of new startups, lots of companies doing very interesting things to really improve the measurement of ESG performance, then that is going to be something that um, gets more and more attention, um, and, and it should do because it's going to be responsible for for driving um, an increasing amount of capital flows into different companies and different different markets.
0: I was, I, just, just to jump across to Angelica on this point, but do you, you genuinely believe that? Uh, ESG reporting into investment leads to an increased rate of flows in, in, into investment, or just a, a substitute?
2: That's an interesting question. Um, to be, if I'll be really honest, I'm not. I'm not sure that I've yet considered um, or tried to, to quantify <clears throat> the extent to which um, it's a substitution effect versus um, a, a genuine increase in flow. I guess. What I would say um, is that, you know, I couldn't I couldn't agree more with um, Ben's comments just now about um, data and and measurement and at the risk of, you know, making, you know, what the, the following, you know, sound sound very, very dry because I know we all love a good discussion about data and measurement. Um, yes, there is a huge amount of research being conducted in, in this area at the moment. And, you know, I don't I don't claim any um, special insight uh, in into these areas, but again this this is an area and and it's particularly interesting you know if the results of the poll are saying that for private um for private investors uh the re- return on capital is is the main consideration then you know all other things being equal i would assume that this will help um you know drive a further increase in sustainable investment in the future because you know again all else being equal i could only imagine that this is something that's going to improve in the years ahead because as far as i can see a big part of the of the data problem is that a lot of these um Funds and indices are actually quite new. Some of them are extremely new. And so basically you don't have a time series and, and you, don't have a, you, know, you don't have a historical track record. I think that's one issue. Um, the, the other issue is um, that's kind of the data issue and then the measurement issue. Well, I mean, there are so many different measurement issues, but one that I think is, is going to be um, possibly a, a particular challenge is you know it's the idea of um metrics and definitions and i guess my sense is that you know this is already a huge huge topic in terms of the e in esg investment Um, but you know there there have been definite you know moves and um, initiatives in terms of um uh measuring environmental impact and um and the environmental metrics but nevertheless um in many of those metrics there is an element of judgment um, my sense is that, as we look more to the s and the g you know right now the social is obviously very much at the forefront of people 's minds um Some of this judgment and the the qualitative factors become even even more pronounced um you know as an investor if you 're looking for you know um standard you know cops I think this is going to be quite quite a tricky thing to to reconcile but again you know um more more data that we'll get
0: with longer time periods should help. I've got, I got, got some good points on the data and the measurement issues. We were talking earlier, before, before we started the webinar, about um, the small board of, of rules and regulations and frameworks that you know, seem, seem to be sort of throwing themselves uh, at, at investors in this space. Do you think, uh, this is a, a, one of those multiple type questions, and this will be my last one I think before we'll, we'll go to the Q&A from the audience, do, do, do you think that private investors, you know, significant private capital really care? Um, you know, and do you think that maybe the, the, the loss of the reporting creates a, a, a level of granularity that that's, um, might be counterproductive? And the third question you know, to sort of comes to the, to the um, reporting point is that do you see the uh, a mandatory uh, requirements, such as the EU taxonomy, as, as, a, as a force for good? Or do you think that maybe it's broad principles um, should, be, should be adopted. Uh, ben, I'll ask, ask you that first, and Can it comes to Angelica.
1: Sure, sure. Um, again, uh, a few things there. Um, I think, so firstly, on disclosure, I mean, I do think that mandatory TCFD disclosure is a good thing, an important thing. And the reason I think the TCFD is a good idea is that it forces companies, preparers, Um, to think systematically about climate risk and there's some accountability and thinking about a problem systematically usually helps you figure out what the right solutions are. Um, And that's an important function. I don't don't really think that the disclosures themselves are going to provide very much insight to investors or to anyone else about the fundamental risk exposure of a company, though. And that's because we know that these disclosures go through the investor relations department and the marketing department, and you know, it's sort of it's the it's the best version of the company, and um it's backward looking, and there's no underlying data that's provided, and all the rest of it. So, so we've, we've got to be careful about what we what we attribute the the, the value of disclosure to. It's useful for some things, and helps with some things, it is not helpful for others. And this is why the measurement questions are important. You know, We need the ability, and we do have the ability, we can have the ability to see what's going on in companies without any disclosure. And we do a lot of this work in Oxford, um, using new geospatial capabilities to do this, what we call spatial finance, which I can tell you more about, but that's gonna be a growth, a growth area. If, you, if, you, if you're interested in a material risk or a material impact or a particular thing, that um concern within a company um you, you you can probably figure it out um the question is making sure that you can figure it out um cheaply <laughs> um and uh, and across a big universe right and and that's that's really the the challenge now in terms of the the taxonomy um i think that's really it's been a really unhelpful process actually um because you know it's it's uh, it, it, and 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 it, because it's because it's a political thing, right? It's not a. It's really got. I don't think it's really, really effective for financial regulation. I think it's it's um, counterproductive. Um, this was all about figuring out how to sub, how to how to allocate a green supporting factor. That was originally how this all started. And if you're going to figure out which types of um, assets should get a green supporting factor, a subsidy, effectively. You need to you need to define uh, what should get the subsidy, um, and, that, and that's kind of what the process began. R- why it began, um, and and it's now being used for for to, to, to sort of help support fiscal policy with the uh, commission bailout. Um, and actually, that's probably the right purpose for it. You know, we, we've decided what we want to subsidize based on whatever the criteria are. Um, you know, great. Uh, but I think for financial regulation, it's um, it's counterproductive and. And if, and if it's all about greenwashing and tackling greenwashing, there's so, much, there's so many better ways of dealing with that problem um, than trying to come up with a taxonomy that defines what green is for every single e- economic activity on planet Earth and tries to update it um, when the thresholds, um, you know, who, who decides the thresholds, the lobbying that will result, um, et, cetera, et cetera. So I think we, we need really firm, robust... Efforts to tackle greenwashing, but um, but in the in the best traditions of the of the common law tradition, which should be about um, you know if you're making claims, you should be held accountable for those claims. So if you're claiming that your fund is making a difference to the rainforest in the Amazon, you better have a way of uh, explaining how that happens mm-hmm. and proving it. Um, and that's and I think uh, you know so that's that's where the r- regulatory pressure. An action should be it should be on authorizing, reauthorizing product and fund claims um, and we do this in other areas, and it works it works quite well um, and I think that's, I think that's, um, that's that, that really is the way the way forward um i'll stop there. I could go on about the taxonomy for for, for some time, um, but it will result in some some unintended consequences and uh, uh, it's a sort of a bit of a waste of time, I think.
0: Yeah, I, well, I think you and me on, on a similar page on, on that respect. But Angelica, coming back to uh, to the point, um, I, I, I did the poll about ESG investing. This then and, and the, the the complete risk, the, the complete wall was um, yeah, absolutely uh, people 95% in in, in in support of ESG investing driving uh, private money to private capital. I've got a question from the audience: Is do you think that the ESG reporting is um, sus- robust and sustainable enough, it's from um, uh, uh, Oliver Crowley from Pinsent Masons um, in, in the UK I assume, it's, do you think that's robust enough to stop uh, what concerns people have about greenwashing?
2: I mean I think this is very much a work in progress right you know like the issue of definitions and and taxonomies i think this is this is as i said it is very much a work in progress because again um these issues are relatively new so outside the sort of you know um very uh, expert and dedicated group of people who've been working on sustainable finance for decades i think when you look at you know financial and related professional services at least in the uk as a whole um i think it's only relatively recently that you know some of these issues like reporting and disclosure of climate risk have really um, come, come to the fore and come to people's attention. And, you know, as, as Ben rightly said, um, even now, a lot of these issues tend to be, um, you know, sort of siloed, if I could use that, that word, within, um, within firms or, or, you know, with one segment of the financial services industry paying, paying more attention um, than, than another. So, you know, are they at this moment in time suitably robust? Um, I would say you know it's moving in the right direction, but there's probably probably still a ways to go. And in terms of the the greenwashing angle specifically, um, yeah, that I agree that is another subject um, that that we could spend a, a couple of hours on. But um, yes, I mean here is where I think um, you know the the idea of uh, stand, standardized, not necessarily prescriptive. Um, but some kind of common and, and standardised um, definitions about, you know, what are we actually talking about when we talk about, um, for example, uh, green or green infrastructure will will help in this regard.
0: Okay, thanks. Uh, I'm just conscious of time now, actually, and I don't know where it's gone. I thought started off the sort of, yeah, thinking that we'll, you know, it's, I hope we do okay. We managed to keep people occupied. We've, we've still got several hundred people um, on, on, online. I'm going to because going you to know, fold up with two final questions and one I think um, um, it's from David in London it's, 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 if private capital is so important what steps should the UK be doing to to marshal it and I think we might have covered it but it'd be useful for a summary in, in that respect uh, and similarly there's, then I've got a local question uh, from Jim um, basically saying that well it, 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 it Guernsey's role is in terms of feeding capital into the city of London is there is there anything else that um, probably those two questions together? What should what should Guernsey be doing? What should London be doing in terms of rooting more capital uh, more private capital into sustainable investments um, going forward? I'm going to go, You I can see a pause to answer sure. there, so I'll, uh, I'll let you go no,
1: I am happy to go first. Um, so. You know, we, we have to move forward. Um, on, a, on all the fronts simultaneously to, to solve this question, right? We we need to create, there need to be um, <laughs> investable propositions. There need to be cash flows um, to, to do the right thing. Um, those either exist because th- the new way of doing things is better than the old way of doing things, or we create markets um, and incentives in different ways to create create that price signal. And then we need, Companies, incumbents as well as new companies, to capture those opportunities and then go to capital markets to raise capital. And so, government, uh, its primary function should be to to try and create those markets, try and create those price signals, support incumbents move, support startups, and so on and so forth. Right? Um, and we could um, we could do more. And I know that um, you know I'm sure there are going to be announcements about how we can do more in relation to the stimulus and and so on and so forth over the coming. Coming months, and as we build up to COP26, um, I think that the role of the city, the role of Guernsey, um, has got to be about creating the products and the services, the vehicles, the channels um, for, for for capital in in all of its sizes mm-hmm. and forms to be allocated to those different opportunities. Um, and th- we've got a long we've got a long way to go, right? Um, and there's there's still lots of untapped. Opportunities, um, structures that could be created, into structures that um, could be tweaked, um, reformed, and, and and so on and so forth. Right, and I think we're we're getting to the point now where we have a really helpful ecosystem, a critical mass of different organisations thinking constructively about this, both in Guernsey and also in the City of London and internationally. Um, and we can we can kind of divvy up the pie based, of, based on our respective expertise and capabilities to try and um, systematically unlock these, these barriers.
0: Product, services, and opportunities, uh, that's very much at the front of the centre of what we're going to be looking to do. Angelica, we've got 30 seconds or more to go with a final word.
2: Very briefly, I guess I would say that, you know, if ever there were a moment where we can see um, the value and the beneficial links between the financial services industry and the real economy, this is it, as we were discussing at the beginning. Um, hopefully what we will get to over the next, you know, one, two, five years is the sort of, you know, fundamental economic rebuilding. Um, I know it's being termed building back better and, and loads of other phrases um so yes absolutely uh financial products and services are going to have to be at the forefront of this and hopefully what we'll see is a bit of a virtuous circle right where you where you see the pipeline of projects you see the increased demand um the financial services industry creates the products and services uh that in itself creates you know more awareness and more demand um more money flowing into the real economy in the relevant sectors hopefully it becomes a virtuous circle and um, final point is just about, you know, um, these are fundamentally international challenges and therefore, you know, kind of a plea for international um, collaboration and cooperation, sharing of best practice. Um, I think that will also go a long way in the in the long term to help address some of these issues.
0: Well, that's a, a great great answer. I think on that, on that point, uh, I've just polled the audience about the, the role for private capital. The, the vast majority say there's, there's, a, there's a huge role for private capital in the recovery. It's been great for you both this afternoon or this morning to join us. Um, I point the audience to our further webinars, Family Offices and Private Equity, on Wednesday and Thursday. Thank you very much, Ben. Thank you very much, Angelica. A huge amounts to take away there. I've probably run out of time to even theme uh, and summarize uh, today's conversation, but it's been a really, really interesting chat. Product services. And structuring key, and an opportunity to build back better, mobilising private capital and generating returns in the post-COVID era to finance sustainability. So, thank you very much, both of you. That's been great. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank
0: you so much.